0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zagney. Joining me today, once again, is our friend, freelance writer, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And we're also joined by our old buddy, former PC gamer intern, now freelance writer, TJ Hafer. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Good to have you back, TJ. Thanks. And finally, we welcome back our friend, now of Campo Santo Games, Nels Anderson. Hello. Today we're going to talk about the Crusader Kings games, and in particular the Sons of Abraham expansion. Uh, we're also going to get at why the Crusader Kings, uh, why Crusader Kings two in particular, seems to have reached beyond the uh, typical paradox audience, which is sort of uh, history nerds like me and our producer Michael Hermes, uh, and, and sort of gotten its hooks into a much broader audience and a very different sort of audience than strategy games uh, usually reach. But to start with, we should dive right into the main reason we're talking about Crusader Kings this week, uh, which is the newly, newly released expansion, Sons of Abraham. Uh, Now, TJ and Rowan, I gather you both have been playing a bit of the new expansion, which adds a lot of new features, and uh, TJ, I figured we'd start with you, because you have, um, you know, a bit of an obsessive uh, relationship with this game, and its ability to, uh, the way it allows you to play uh, Germanic and Norse people. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So, I, I guess, you know, we'll start with you, TJ. You know, maybe you can break down for us, what are the, you know... What are the big new things in Sons of Abraham, the big changes that you've noticed, and how do you feel those have impacted the game? Well, the the sort of, you know, uh,
1: bullet points are they finally added Judaism as a religion, um, which <clears throat> I've tried and failed a couple of times to get to catch on. They're not in the best starting position um, in Europe. There's one Jewish state, which is the uh, Khazars, who are surrounded by... Completely by people of other religions that want their land, and they have no allies. So um, they've added that start in. They've added uh, new mechanics for the papacy, where there's actually a college of cardinals, and you can work to get you know somebody from your house, Borgia-like, into the papacy. And at that point, you're like, hey. Um, so that guy with the big kingdom over there, he he looked at me funny, can I have a crusade on him? And the Pope will be like, Sure you can have a crusade. So, uh, there's that that angle of gameplay you can take, which is a lot of fun. And probably not the biggest thing that that Paradox touted, but what I've had the most fun with is the way that they've fleshed out heresies, where um things like, you know, the Fraticelli or Lollard or Cathar heresy can actually by outnumbering uh, vanilla Catholicism become the new orthodoxy and then the old religion becomes a heresy and you get all the holy orders and uh, if if you're following a heresy that has a formalized head you kind of replace the old pope with your new pope which I actually am 60 hours into a game as the uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex which is the kingdom of England now where I Adopted the Fraticelli heresy, installed the Fraticelli Pope, and Catholicism is just barely hanging on by a thread. We put an end to their decadent ways and uh, instated a a more, um, I guess, Fraticelli is is they they were against the wealth and opulence of, of the papacy. So I've kind of been RPing that out a little bit. Um, am I missing anything? Oh yeah, there's also a lot of new events, which is... It almost seems like a little bit disappointing when you compare it to the old gods, just as far as what is added to the game that you can read on a sheet. But when you start playing it, there are a lot of new and really cool events that have kind of been slipped in under the radar that make it fun to play some of the starts that had, you know, gotten kind of stale over all the time that the game has been out, at least for someone who's Played 570 hours of it, like I have. It's
0: <laughs> oh god, is that god. real?
1: <laughs> yes. Is that the uh, real number? Yeah, I've played just 60 hours just since this expansion came out, which is part of the uh, trans- transition from a, a an office 40 hours a week job to more of a freelance oh. situation. But, oh, oh TJ, yeah.
0: you know you know life is finite, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I do. Know, eventually, this riot is over.
1: I do, and and I do not regret any of the time that I have spent playing Crusader Kings life is
2: finite play crusader kings
1: exactly (laughs) what else would i be doing so um but yeah it's it's a really it's it's not the expansion i was the most excited about when i heard what was coming but actually having played it it is it is um it's definitely a different game and i'm i'm enjoying it a lot
0: well, they also, you know, they it also released in tandem with a, with a big. I think it's the two patch, right? Uh, so that also changed a whole lot of things. And I was talking to uh, the uh, design lead on on Crusader Kings two, uh, Henrik, and he was he was telling me about um, you know, the fact that like little things, just like the fact that uh, you know, female characters could not die in childbirth, for instance, when the game originally launched. Which, you know, if you think about it, that that that's not very medieval. Uh, so so now you've got the you know mortality rates uh, are, are more where they should be. There have been a lot of a lot of changes to the core game in addition to this expansion, all at once that should change the feel. Um, Rowan, I, I want to turn to you and and see like I've been playing with the game a little bit myself, and I sort of feel like the main thing is uh, my, my big takeaway is it's it's just a better more refined uh, version of crusader kings 2 that's my that's my main experience after having been away for, from it for almost a year but i'm curious uh whether any of the changes in the expansion or with the patch have really jumped out to you as a uh, changing the feel of the game
2: um i only played about 100 years of a game yet last night uh, so I didn't see a huge amount of changes. I got managed to get one of my cardinals into or one of my bishops into the College of Cardinals, and then I had no idea what to do with him after that. Yeah. So
1: that's honestly, I mean, I would say that's probably the worst new feature. Like I barely bother with it. Um, but it could just be that I haven't really gotten my head around how to play a full up papal game. But generally, it's like you know, I can I can get a CB for something if I really need it. So.
2: Yeah. um, One of the main things that I did was I just did a vanilla game because I had been mostly trying to play with mods, particularly Crusader Kings 2+. And I eventually just given up on that. They appear to be going in a direction that I don't really think they should. And uh, so I went to regular Crusader Kings 2 with The 2.0 patch, and it's got a lot of the a lot of the feel that I was getting only out of mods before. They've like tweaked it just enough that you know there's more variety in uh, the events, which is a big thing. Mods tended to add a lot of those that the original game was lacking, and the history seemed to be plausible and interesting without being totally overboard. I guess that's part of the plausible, but like. the Byzantines lost a big war with the Abbasids early on, and so the Pope called a crusade in like 915, and right. then there was a ca- a Catholic Greece for 50 years, and then they lost again, and they went back again. And
1: yeah, uh, the the holy sites that they added in old gods now um, basically can trigger crusades if they're held by a religion other than the religion whose holy site they are. So that's pretty cool.
0: You know, honestly, I think for me, because I never, I, I kind of skipped over uh, old gods. For me, I love the uh, new start date, uh, it, where just because there's so much that's still up in the air uh, toward the close, the close of the ninth century, uh, it, so it's it's really a lot of fun to play. Whereas I kind of feel like the the old start date, the more you know, the more high Middle Ages start date, um, tended to be things were a little more codified, and it felt like there was a little less dynamism, uh, especially for like playing. Uh, smaller, like you know, like dukes and such. Uh, it could be harder to work your way up to a throne. Whereas now, God knows what's going to happen in the next ten years.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in the 1066 start date, you know, it's going to be pretty much Christianity versus Islam, and then maybe if they don't convert, the the Mongol hordes will spread some Tangriism. In my current Wessex game, the the one that I've been playing since Sons of Abraham came out, completely without my intervention. Uh, They reformed, the Baltic people reformed the Romuva religion without any of my tampering in that area of the world. And there are actually three really big reformed Baltic pagan kingdoms. There's, like, Lithuania um, and Pomerania and, like, one other one that have, like, their own little thing going on over there, which is pretty awesome.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like we're all ending up in the same place, uh, in a similar place of... Uh, kind of like we did last week, where, okay, it's it's more of this game we really like. It's got more stuff in it, and that's really cool. And I see I see no problem with that. Like it's 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 wonderful to have new reasons to revisit an old game, uh, especially to have a bunch of new events uh, show up. And I've seen some absolutely bonkers shit popping up on the Paradox forums. Yeah. Uh, by the way, like there was one thing that uh. Uh, Fred Wester was was retweeting. It was a link to a uh, to an after action report on the Paradox forums, where I'm sure you guys all read it. But so tell me if I get anything wrong. But apparently his kingdom basically had was like under attack from powerful enemies, and a Joan of Arc type figure shows up to save the kingdom, mm-hmm. and so it's like the teenage girl uh, with just like martial score of like. 35 or something Insanity. Just
1: <laughs> way more you could ever get from breeding it's an insani- a sa- insane amount right. of martial skill yeah
0: so so this like warrior saint shows up and just starts like kicking ass uh in in this kingdom's wars but then apparently there's also a um a niece or something who uh is born in the midst of this war who is kind of creepy it's kind of a creepy little kid uh You know, and weird things start happening around this kid. And okay, you get you get weird kids in Crusader Kings, right? Like every family's got one. Well, Crusader Kings is that game, but when this kid is comes to maturity, uh, she emerges as basically the devil incarnate. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like like we're not even like I'm not even kidding. Like name every conniving vice. Like all her character traits are like pure malevolent evil. Uh, wantonness, lustfulness, um, manipulation—her intrigues through the roof—and uh, she just starts killing off like entire branches of the family tree. Basically, like,
1: everyone in front of her in the line of succession somehow yeah. dies. Yeah.
0: So oh my she. God. So she gets to she she, she basically ascends. She's either takes the throne or she's second in line, but she's kind of the power behind the throne, but she gets in a position where she's hugely powerful and she's like about to take the kingdom. And, uh, the guy playing the game is like, okay, well shit. Um, I'm not like, okay, this, this character is horrible, but now she's my heir. So we're going to be on board with this. Cause I like, I'm not walking away from this game just because I basically have the spawn of Satan uh, climbing climbing the ranks. So when she's made heir or ascends, apparently the other nobles are like, hey, we're not going to serve the spawn of Satan, so we're going to rebel. And the player starts like, okay, I need to hire mercenaries, call in my allies. But apparently it's totally irrelevant because at this point, what is it? like Mor- Morgana the Witch...
1: Yeah, it's it's um, um it's Morgana, Jezebel, and I think maybe Cersei is the other one. Yes, like they're all famous witches from different. They uh, appear on the map with these unholy knights at their back, <laughs> 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 and they're they, they're like the the generic pagan religion, which it's like wink wink Satanism sort of. So
0: yeah, so they appear on the map and just start like smoking the rebel forces um and just quash this rebellion in the cradle and i are just kind of like roving the map meanwhile though the joan of arc character is still there um having to sort of lead this war uh against external enemies while her now future queen uh you know uh, satan is going <laughs> to be uh is sort of quashing all the resistance at home so Reading that, like, I figure that's gotta be like I'd be curious to know what the uh for lack of a better term, like the uh drop rate on that event is, like how often that friggin' happens. I actually
1: Uh, I went into the game files and it's kind of based on how much of a dick your ruler is to begin with. Like if you're you have the impaler trait and you have a lot of vices it increases your chance for the event to fire.
2: So I, I had the start of that. Um, before the new expansion, so this was with the old gods or in a post-old gods patch, Um, but I had a girl who, when she was born, you know, my, this was when I was playing as a Viking, I had my, whatever the, um, whatever the equivalent of the chaplain came in and started ranting that she was was the devil. And that happens every now and then. And, you know, the people are perfectly fine, but this time she actually was, you know, a demon spawn. And, started killing people as soon as she turned six years old and eventually she became uh the duchess of a what would eventually become sweden the one that usually does i forget exactly which Um, yeah and i was actually her heir to that so i started a a an intrigue to have her killed and that fired and you know that was the end of that um but yeah, I I had the start of that one before the the new, the uh, the Sons of Abraham. But no, I've never even heard of the Joan of Arc event. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So yeah, reading that reading that AAR, I, the, the, I was just like blown away that that can be in the game, and um, it's really cool that's sort of there for people to stumble across and uh, have that happen to. Uh, but it, it kind of brings me to. Uh, I, I think maybe one of the reasons that Crusader Kings has sort of uh, attracted this audience beyond people like me who are totally, help- hopelessly addicted to games like uh, European Universalis 4. Uh, and, you know, I kind of want to talk to Nels here because, Nels, you named this as one of your favorite games of 2012. And I guess I want to know, like, is this your kind of game? Like, do you have a, like, outside of games like this, do you have much of an attachment to a lot of strategy games? And, uh, what made Crusader Kings stand out so much in your mind?
3: Yeah, um, it's pretty non-specific. Like, I certainly like strategy games a lot, but I, I wouldn't say that, like, they're a thing I play preferentially over other stuff. Especially the, kind of the more hardcore grognarty ones I tend not to attach to very much. Um... But it's weird because I love history. Like, I'm a giant, giant history nerd. But for some reason, I don't know if it's just because those games are abstract in a way that I don't connect with. Like, Victoria or Europa Universalis or anything like that. I just look at them and I'm like, I, I, I would probably like it, I guess. But there wasn't enough to, like, get me over that hump. Um, but I think the thing that did it with Crusader Kings is that it... It makes the personalities in the game a lot more manifest. Like, you're not being responsible for, you know, some vague collection of resources or territory or whatever. Like, the game is primarily about the people, and that the other stuff is all obviously very important, but secondary to, to the relationships between you and everybody else. But it does, so all that, all the personality stuff is there, but it's still abstract, so you can still kind of imagine like all the crazy stories that are happening in between these people when the game really just kind of says like, Oh, here's the thing that happened. And here's the thing that happened, but it gives you a ton of space to fill in those blanks. And then you get amazing stuff like the Joan of Arc leading the armies while the devil sits on the throne back home or a million other incredible things.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And what, what's kind of odd to me revisiting it, uh, You know, coming back to Crusader Kings 2 after, you know, about a year away from it. I was once reminded why I kind of, why I didn't fall for Crusader Kings 2 as much as I did EU4, which is that this is very much a game uh, where you kind of watch it work. Like you can, like, knowing when to intervene and do things is a big part of it. Like when you actually have to take control and make a decision and push history in a certain direction yeah that's that's a big part of, of Crusader Kings 2 that's your active role as a player but a lot of the rest is just kind of sitting back and watching how things unfold watching how you know you you look at a character in your court for instance and you know your relationship their, their relationship to your character is really good but they've also got some vices that concern you they're ambitious they're conniving their intrigue is really high uh, you know they're, they're they're kind of not a good person except for the loyalty to you, but they're useful. And you kind of just need to see how that unfolds, right? And it's always interesting to see how it does. like is this person going to turn out to be kind of a um, you know an amazing like wartime conciliary? Uh, or is this person going to eventually become someone who you discover is quietly trying to off your relatives, uh, or 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 take out fellow vassals uh, in order to improve their position? And it's it, it's kind of fascinating just to see how these dramas play out in every lifetime. Uh, and even you know even though there's a, there's actually a lot you can't control in this game, just seeing. The, the fact that this is a game where you can't game the system well enough that you know what's going to happen is actually really
3: exciting territory for me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why I like it a lot, is that because the game doesn't give you any real goals at all, it's just kind of like, you know, oh, well, when the game, what is it, like 10 or 1454, whenever the game turns off, it's like, well, that's when it's going to be over, so have fun until then which means that like that crazy weird unexpected stuff can happen and you don't feel like you're losing you can just kind of ride the crazy wave and enjoy it yeah and it's
1: the the time frame what i've kind of realized about it playing as much of it as i have is when you get a really good ruler it only takes you know a few decades really maybe a couple generations to build yourself up from basically nothing to having a a fairly powerful realm so if you've been building up this grand kingdom from like 867 to like 950 or something and it all collapses and you're reduced to like two provinces like well you know I've started with two provinces before and I've still got you know, over 500 years to kind of get back to where i was and maybe even surpass that so it's it's a game where that riding the wave you're talking about the rise and decline can actually be a you know a fun way to keep yourself challenged you know
2: it's the old gods has kind of proven to me to be uh a bit of an issue with that because games get mature a lot faster or a lot earlier in the, the time frame so you can have a game where you have a fairly sedentary set of powers by you know 1100 or so which makes it a lot harder to come back from uh, having a bad ruler even though they're supposedly 400 years i've had several games where i just get totally stuck in you know, I have a county or two and I'm surrounded by dukes and there's really nothing I can do.
1: Well, you just, um, you, you swear fealty to one of them and then tear apart their empire from the inside.
2: <laughs> I mean, that is possible, but that depends on, well, it depends on the religion. The game I'm thinking of now is one that I spent a lot of time with as a, as the Viking, uh, the one I was talking about earlier. And then I, got slowly shoved out by the catholics and never got events to convert um Mm -hmm. until uh until it was essentially too late and i just had my counties constantly being destroyed because i had i was totally unable to get allies by marrying off my children because the children were all pagans and the everyone that i could potentially ally with was catholic so that was a little too realistic for me i think (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah if if you don't end up uh reforming the religion as a pagan and uh you'll, you'll get to a point eventually where i mean I'm, I'm glad they added this but there's a decision now where if someone is declared a holy war on you you can end the war immediately and convert to the attacker's religion which is usually what you nice. end up having to do if you're a, a uh, an unreformed pagan by the 1100s or so so
2: I dislike that marriage is actually not an option between different religions, because that was how many medieval conversions happened. It is. Um, is.
1: And Sons of Abraham has actually added uh, traits where you can be tolerant to um, another religious group. Like you could have, uh, you know, a Swedish Catholic who... He's a first-generation Catholic, so he still has sympathy for the old faith. Um, Unfortunately, it's not a very common trait, so those kind of cross marriage religions still really don't happen that often but they've well, at that's least probably added
2: actually good yeah um yeah i mean i wouldn't want it to happen too often because the alliance power would just be totally shattered but having it happen enough that you would have a powerful character to get married and then potentially convert i think is a good idea
0: what kind of amazes me there, there's there, there's two things i guess that that really uh, delight me about Crusader Kings 2 because uh, they're so odd. One is that, man, this is a game where despite the fact it's a political game about expanding your holdings and improving the position of your family, like it does not pay to get attached to anything in this game. Like It's not like Civilization where you're like oh man, I'm going to put down some wonders now and that city's going to be pretty sweet. That city is going to be excellent from now until forever. And you, you get really, like, sort of invested in, you know, whatever the primary city of your empire is. You're really attached to that. Uh, that's going to be with you through the game. Matt, like, Crusader Kings 2 is you just kind of have to ride the wave. Uh, and so, like, you, you get things that just sort of fall into your lap, but then they're taken away from you uh, just as quickly. Like, I was um, playing uh, East Francia. Uh, which is uh, basically what we, you know, it, it's, it's basically western-central Germany. Um, mm-hmm. And I was sort of lining things up for my heir, and, you know, I was really trying to make sure that he was going to be in a good position, uh, shoring up the alliance with Bavaria. And uh, then, like, just as uh, my old king was probably about to die, uh, his only heir just, just up and died uh, at the age of, like, 29, uh, 30. Uh, just gone and I was like well that sucks I'm done like this game is this game is screwed until I realized that the next heir uh, turns out to be the king of Bavaria who I've just allied with uh, who's also a kinsman and suddenly I am controlling uh, you know within a year I'm controlling some sort of Germanic super state <laughs>
3: yeah uh, that
0: stretched from the North Sea all the way down to uh, the northern edge of Italy and uh, and it's just like made of soldiers and wealth and power uh and it's 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 awesome uh and then i'm like oh god how can i how can i hold on to this how can i hold on to this because unfortunately the moment my king dies it's going to split among his three sons and those two kingdoms will still exist as discrete political units they're only unified in this one guy's person and once that guy is dead that you you lose half your territory and that's uh, you know you know you like you can try to see about keeping it you can go full psychotic and start killing off your other kids uh, so that succession laws will allow you to keep everything you have uh, i wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> i i keep, I, mean, I keep toying with it i'm like i don't know if i want to go this route uh, Wait, this is i would
2: i think this is like the grandest achievement of crusader kings 2 is that it made like the ottoman succession seem like a really good idea you have <laughs> right. your one heir and then you either imprison or kill every other potential heir yeah every time
1: i i i think that any any reasonable person would be horrified if they found out how many of my own children i have killed over my crusader king's career it's probably <laughs> in the hundreds
0: but But here's the other thing that that kind of uh, amazes me. And and Nels, I'm curious how you handle this because I I think I might not be smart enough really to play Crusader. I'm I'm bad with names. I'm bad with faces. Um, Crusader Kings 2 is all about knowing these relationships. It's like you have to hold in your head this really complicated network of relationships between vassals and courtiers and then other kingdoms and other courts and then sometimes they're va- there's sub infudation where like one guy's a vassal to you and he's a duke under you but he's also a count under another king and I kind of end up in a place usually where I'm just like okay' I'm just gonna play this by feel I'm not really certain what's gonna happen if I try to like take this guy's fief but we're gonna see because uh, I just I can't really easily track what the hell's going on D- did you did you go did, did, did you go fully down the rabbit hole and start like mon- like figuring out how all these people are related and what they think of each other
3: um, kind of organically because like when I played it I, I mean I, I like no one I don't even I was trying to remember earlier before we jumped on here like why I started playing it and I don't I honestly can't remember what it was aside from other people saying it was cool. And, like, someone just, someone was probably describing, like, some insane scenario that played out with all these plots and stuff. Anyway, um, but I, like, you know, just read a couple things on a wiki, and it was just like, well, I guess I'm going to play this game now and try to figure it out. So the process for which I kind of came to understand, like, the complicated web of everything that was very organic, um, I think a lot of that ended up, like, the way I generally remembered people was by, like, the weird, crazy... Events that had happened up to that point, right? It's like, oh, you know, oh, it's that asshole in Gallery who like tried to lead a rebellion a few years ago, and I haven't, I had his mom in prison for like thirty years or whatever. Um, and that's what kind of made everything feel tangible, and a lot of that stuff I could remember. But of course, I'm sure there were tons and tons of other people. I was like, oh, that's the guy who likes me at seventeen. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I'll make him master of the horse and get him up to twenty seven, and then we'll be good. Um, but the bits where it was like, yeah, just some insane stuff played out and, like, the people, even though they're, just, they're, like, the most boiled down, just, like, really just a collection of, like, a few adjectives and then a bunch of math that adds up to whether positive or negative they like you, um, it's just – it's it like I said before, it's, like, it's abstract enough that you can – Introduce a lot of personality there that the game doesn't explicitly say exists and that kind of helped me create like this weird crazy Game of Thrones cast of characters in my brain that I could remember and Come to loathe many of them I think Another thing that's impressive
2: about the game and this may well be totally accidental is that, you know, knowing every single one of those relationships helps a lot when you're a count who's trying to just get that duchy. But as soon as you have a kingdom and you have like fifty people within that kingdom, then you have to just kind of say that you're going to lead the kingdom as a kingdom and not like play favorites and not not try to know everybody because you have a whole kingdom to run there too many people for that so it sort of has this um historical or sociological mechanic of forcing bigger leaders to think more abstractly and less about life in terms of relationships uh and that's i think it's actually more
3: impressive that i feel like that's probably accidental yeah. Well, you can just imagine right like someone rolls up into, you know, some king's feast hall or whatever and he's just like, "I'm sorry, who are you again?" <laughs> That's totally like what happens when you're like, "Oh, this guy, he's he's like trying to plot to kill my wife." And you're like, "Who who the hell even is this guy?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah, it's so good. It's always amazing when you like discover there's a plot happening in your court or something and you're like, "Wait, this guy's trying to like kill my kid." And that makes no Like, I don't even know who this guy is. So you look through it. And then sort of like, I, I don't know, like in, in All the President's Men or something, where Woodward and Bernstein are in the, in, the, like, in the library, you know, like putting all the pieces together. Where you're like, where you start to realize like, holy shit. This complete nobody actually has like a viable line to one of the most important duchies in the kingdom. And is actually, I think, been killing numerous people throughout this game and now my son is the last piece of the puzzle. Right. And it's like, ah boy, I don't know. And by this point it's like it's almost too late to stop them sometimes because you get like people get better at intrigue as time goes by. Like a seasoned plotter, you know, by like age forty or fifty can be a truly terrifying collection of stats in terms of like subterfuge. And so you'll get these amazing experiences where like yeah, some weird like random count or something out of nowhere was just pulling all the shit and you like sort of heard rumors that like people were dying suspiciously, blah blah blah. But yeah, you're a king. It's just you, you like you can you can barely remember the guy's name. You just happen to notice that like bad things keep happening to people in northern Germany or something. Weird, right? And then the guy sort of emerges <laughs> on the scene at age fifty and his intrigue is like twenty five and he's just an unstoppable killing machine. Um and then you make him your spymaster, uh, which is something else I I really enjoy the the sort of the weird like Roman Colosseum free for all you let sort of happen within your realm. Uh, in in park is what you're talking about, Rowan, The whole like I have to stay neutral. I can't get involved in this bullshit. Uh, but then it's also just interesting to see like sometimes you might have a really bad vassal who is being really aggressive and declaring war on other vassals and, you know, there's basically civil war in your realm. They're leading assassinations and plots. And sometimes it pays just to sit back and watch that happen. Cause you know what? That guy's a comer. That guy. That guy, that, guy is, <laughs> that guy is, that guy is, that guy is executive material. That's what you want. <laughs> that's what you, that's what your kingdom needs. And so you're like, go ahead, kill my cousin. Let's yeah. see. If you can do One that, of- then we'll talk.
1: One of my favorite things to do is I decide someone needs to disappear, and uh, you know because I have a claim or something, and he's in the way. I go to him, I see what my assassination percentage chance is. If it's really low, that usually means he has a really good spy master. So I pay off his spy master, invite him to court, make him my spy master, and before he can hire another spy master, I send assassins after him. And oh my since God. his his court intrigue wow. has now been compromised usually succeeds wow. <laughs> so it's like oh i see you're doing a good job of protecting with this guy that i want to kill um i'll pay you more than he's paying you if you come over and help me kill him instead so that's uh that's that's a crusader king's pro tip for you right there
3: also for life yes <laughs> yeah no it's just yeah the um there's so much yeah the stuff that just these events that like seemingly that I it, the, the the like the great accomplishment of the game is like there's all this stuff that may actually just be random but it feels like it's this series of interconnected events and then sometimes it actually is and that just reinforces when it's actually just a bunch of random stuff that in your head you're putting together and then it's just is yeah there's always it always feels like there's more going on than there actually probably is but it works so bloody well you just it like the game meets you halfway and you're more than happy to meet it the other half of the way and it's tremendous
0: no tj you you've actually gone into the event the events and looked at their probabilities and such but the impression i get is that one of the one of the ways the game meets you halfway is that it definitely seems like there are certain events that sort of set up other possible story arcs later uh that Yeah, this might be a one-off event. It might be a thing that doesn't lead anywhere in terms of subplot. But it could also set up two or three interesting event lines down the road. Uh, But I have no idea if that's just me sort of constructing a narrative out of it. Or whether or not there's a lot of these sort of potential event chains where like, if X happens, then Y and Z are possible in 10 years or so.
1: There are, there are a couple of those in the game right now, I know. and and last time I talked to Henrik, he said he wants to add a lot more. like uh, in the upcoming expansions, we're gonna see a lot of of those kind of event chains that will not only span you know multiple years but mo- might span multiple generations of rulers. Um, I know one of the ones I've seen is your character can um, discover or buy a holy relic. And that relic will be handed down with your titles. So you'll have that over multiple generations of rulers. And every once in a while, an event will come up like, uh, you know, the peasants are are getting restless. Um, you should go use your holy relic to go bless the fields. And it, like, it reduces the revolt risk in that province for a, a set amount of time. And then eventually That's there's cool. an, ev- an event com- that comes up where... Uh, it got misplaced and, and they found it chewed up by the dog or something. <laughs> so you end up losing your holy relic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how many of those are in the game right now. That's the only one I've seen from the expansion that is actually a, a long-term chain of events. But uh, supposedly we're going to be seeing more of those, which I am very happy about.
3: So. There's this um, one of the things that playing Crusader Kings 2 I was reminded of in, in hindsight. There's this board game called Tales of the Arabian Nights. Have y'all ever played it? No, but I,
0: I mm-hmm. think I've heard some of this from Chris Remo.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like from from the 80s, um, but there, Fantasy Flight did a newer version a couple of years ago. But all it is is like you're just kind of going around the Middle East, having like these crazy adventures. And then when you go to a place, it's just got some number, and you look up in it like this giant probably like more than a thousand and one stories type book and you go it's like okay well you know it's this is event like 217 okay there's like some weird jin or something he wants something out of you are you going to try to like lie, lie are you going to give him what he wants or lie to him or whatever and it's just these they're i mean they're totally random it's just like you go to the grids in the book but the succession of several random those things all happening at once gives you this impression of like who the character you're playing is and what they want and what the other people in the world wants and it crusader kings t- totally feels like it has that same thing where there's just enough random stuff that in your head you can now construct this crazy narrative of how the person you're playing is like clearly cursed by the gods and is totally incompetent but is also kind of charming and can always find some way to get people to like him and get what he wants uh and that yeah after after playing ck2 i was like oh my god it totally is tales of the arabian Nights, but with way more in it that's awesome yeah
0: and i also love how it captures this it captures this idea that on the one hand you're playing a political game you're trying to be an effective ruler whatever that means to you uh whether it means you know building up an, an economy uh, laying the groundwork for the future, uh, leading wars, whatever. Uh, and, and so there's that, but then you're also trying to be the, the head of this family, um, that wearing those two hats becomes really interesting when those two things begin to not necessarily push in the same direction. Like when you're coming toward the end of, uh, of a certain character's life, you know, and you have more holdings than you'll be able to keep. Like once, you're, once your character moves on, uh, things are going to be broken up and power is going to be redistributed and your son may not be ready, whatever. Um, and so you start making decisions not necessarily with an eye toward the greater good. But with an eye toward what's going to set up the next generation the best? What's going to allow my family to prosper? And so maybe you start leading things in a bad direction for certain other parts of your holdings. Like, you know, yeah, okay, we, we will start shit on this western border and create a war there. Uh, and we're going to stop investing in, you know, infrastructure and armies there. And just kind of, yeah, let, let a few just go wrong. Whatever. Because uh, your heir... Is going to be inheriting something else—the thing that you're, you know, actually protecting—and I, I kind of, I kind of enjoy the, I, I kind of enjoy the the, the difference in roles uh, that the game has you play. The, this this notion that, yeah, okay, there's your political role, but then there's also this like totally mafia esque. You know, hat you're wearing—that's definitely like, yeah, okay. Everyone else can go screw themselves. It's all about the family. It's all about mm-hmm. the interests of this this bizarre, twisted little clique.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it gets um, especially because I like to run elective succession a lot. And one of the awkward situations you find yourself in is there is this ambitious, strong, brave, virtuous genius that is like the clear front runner. He would make an amazing king but he's not of your dynasty. And so he needs to die. (laughs) And maybe the available hairs from your dynasty, you know, will, will not do nearly as good a job of leading as this guy would have. So it's like, all right, do I maybe want to hand over the throne at least for as long as this guy lives? And I'll go back to being a Duke. I've been a King for 150 years. I'll go back to being a Duke for a little while. I'll let him call the shots or I'm going to, destroy this hero of the nation basically just to keep the top level title in my family so yeah the way that the way that they have set you up as a dynasty and not a state definitely creates some really interesting situations like that
3: yeah it's cool there's definitely in like the one big super long game i played there was it was that that same situation where yeah my first i'd switched it from um uh, uh, I switched it to primogeniture and then but the first son in line was just an idiot right just, just, a, just a moron incompetent but I was <laughs> like oh it's, it's it's really too grim to like murder him so I switched it over to elective like got everyone to back the second son who was like totally competent and awesome then like 100, 150 years later, all of a sudden people are like voting for these other dukes that I'm not even related to. And I'm like, what? This was this was a great idea before, but now no, this is terrible. So then yeah. you have to change the succession laws back, and that's impossible, and everybody hates it when you do that. So you're like, oh god, I've been a hell of my own making. God damn you, yeah. great grandfather.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh. always that that moment of panic when you realize that Someone you don't want is about to inherit and you don't have the time or resources to change your succession law, so you're just going to have to live with it.
0: Yeah, you've really you've really got to trust in your prestige if you're going to go elective, and you've really got to make sure that you're staying on top of the situation. Like, elective scares the hell out of me, mm-hmm. uh, just because, yeah, I, I know that I can, you know, you can maybe guarantee one or two successions, but after that, it starts to get really shaky.
1: You have to start basically stabbing people left and right (laughs) which i guess is the same with any any succession law but
0: i had
2: really good luck with elective in general until the game i started last night where like i had i managed to i was playing as a french duchy and i managed to win a holy war against the norse who had taken over Brittany. so i got a whole bunch of new counties there and I just started dumping, you know, reasonably, reasonably well, uh, well-statistic counts that had just appeared in my, uh, appeared in my court. So it's like, oh, hey, you've got a marshal of 12. Congratulations. You're the new count of Ron. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then those guys started winning my elections. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'd never seen that before. Usually i you know the people who are competing with you in the elections who aren't your family are uh very powerful counts or dukes who've been there for a long time and these guys just immediately lined up a whole bunch of support and i have no idea how that happened if it's because i wasn't playing crusader kings 2 plus if it's because i wasn't uh or if there's something in the new patch or uh the new patch or expansion that Makes elective more volatile, but yeah, elective used to be almost a guarantee for me, and then last night, twice in a row, it was the opposite of that.
3: <laughs> I mean, that's the other cool thing about CK2 that I like so much is that, like, it is a game fundamentally about consequences, right? Like, even when you may make some decision about something that doesn't matter, it always just because so often it, it there are going to be consequences that the times when it doesn't, it still feels like it does. And most of the time it does, right? Where you're like, oh, God, I did this thing before, and that guy was really mad at me, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. But now he's got, like, this whole rebel host, and he's super pissed. You're like, oh, God, what did I do? And that's – but because the game doesn't doesn't have, like, a very hard loss state – Like, the fact that those sometimes those unforeseen consequences are not necessarily the best thing for you, but they're still interesting, still feels, like, rewarding and good, and you can keep engaging with it, and you want to keep playing versus just feeling like you're losing, right? Um, Because I find that, like, in some more... And this could just be a, a totally false perception, but in some, like, more you know, traditional or whatever strategy games where there is like very clearly this is the 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 goal to achieve, like this is your win state. That like when a really bad thing happens, you're just like, oh well I'm losing now. Uh I guess I'll like reload an old save or start over or whatever. But because like there aren't really super hard loss conditions like that in CK two, and even when crazy bad things happen, they're still interesting. You still feel like you want to keep playing. Um I think that's part of the part of the magic as to why it's like it's so good because you then because what you get is like the crazy stories you can tell about it right where you know the thing crazy thing happened in the family but then someone came back whatever it's all more of that like fuel for drama and i don't know how much of that was like super explicitly designed like i don't know if the first crusader kings had the same kind of like almost being an engine for creating like really crazy awesome stories so i don't know if it was just like they kind of thought that would be part of it, and but then it was happenstance that it was as big of a thing as it is or if they really tried to build it or, or what. But that's the thing that definitely, I think, drew me in and made me just like, oh, my God, I love this.
2: I did a feature on that where I interviewed Henrik and kind of analyzed what he said and how it was like to play it. And um, it was an accident. I mean, they wanted more complex interactions, and they wanted... Uh, To have a little more like The Sims, combined with the original Crusader Kings, combined with like a Game of Thrones style um, events involving the characters. But he said they like they just threw a bunch of stuff in there, and it ended up working extraordinarily well. Like he said, they they'd add a bunch of traits, and the beta test would just be like, "Cool, more traits. Let's see what happens." As opposed to like, okay, this is something we need to work on here or here or here, which I think is Really. really interesting. It's just like, yeah. Huh. Putting a bunch of mechanics in in sort of the, the right direction led them to something that just... Uh, like, it just kept stacking on its, uh, itself exponentially until it turned
0: incredibly memorable.
3: Yeah, interesting. You, you
0: get kind of this weird, this weird sense of order in uh, Crusader Kings, where, on the one hand, the game is totally about sort of the random happenstance of of life in this period right like there's a lot of stuff you just you just can't see coming like you know everything was going great and then your king takes a cold and dies just before you know basically watching all his plans come to fruition
1: or even worse natural causes which is now called poor health which is just you you got screwed on the die roll and he died for no reason
0: (laughs) does it always mean that by the
1: way it's it's when there's there's basically a chance at all times that, that
0: helped along
1: that you could just die, not because you were sick, not okay. because you were wounded, just because people die. And it the the multiplier for that event to fire gets higher as you get older, but every once in a while it's like mm. you rolled a one, you died at sixteen of no discernible reason, so.
0: Yeah, so on the one hand, you've got you've got to deal with that the just the incredible uncertainty of this game, but then I also love this idea, and it's what plays into the storytelling is that there's there's an element that everything has, everything reverberates in this game. You know what I mean? Like your grandfather totally screwed over a count, and kind of shattered this family, and then you sort of forget about them, and you know they're they're non factors anymore. Except maybe they're not, you know, and you, you can never, you, 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 a lot of things don't really lead anywhere. Sometimes people just get completely destroyed in this game. But it's really rewarding to see how often over the course of like, you know, 60 years, 90 years, whatever, you do have this this sense that, no, like you said, Nels, everything had consequences, that this person you completely stepped on to, you know, take over a duchy and ascend the next rung of the uh, feudal ladder, uh, you know, yeah, that family may not be a political force anymore, but who could have foreseen that their daughter would become the queen of France and one of the most powerful people in Europe? You know what I mean? Like this, this wonderful sense that. On the one hand, there's this this incredible randomness to how things play out in this game. But then there's this weird order that is also operating. It almost operates on tragic principles, too. It, it operates on dramatic principles where, like... You know the the these things that are set up are you were setting events in motion, uh, where unlike a tr- typical strategy game, you know where you end a campaign, you you end a war, or something, and it kind of trails off like it, it has a rational ending. Here you have a I, I always walk away with a, a greater sense that there are vendettas and plots that sort of last over long periods, uh, in, in a way that other strategy games do not. Now that might also be the way that I play it. I tend to play really vindictively. <laughs> um, And yeah. so if something bad happens to my family in the year 900, I'm still going to be smarting about it in like 1155.
1: Yeah. I play the same way. I've, I've <laughs> taken revenge by killing off entire dynasties before.
2: <laughs> and they've set up more mechanics that will encourage that. Like the adventure mechanic that they added in the old gods when, you know, you take out a duchy, you exile everyone, or they all go into exile, and, you know, one of that family's sons ends up in, like, a Viking court, a, a strong claim on whatever county or duchy you took over, and then, you know, 40 years later, they decide to show up with 5,000 men, and that's probably going to cause problems for you, and I think it, it they've the designers have done a really good job of encouraging that uh sort of emergent storytelling um by adding things that you know happened in the medieval era and actually beyond there were people doing that through the 1800s in england
0: one one other thing i know that uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about rowan uh i haven't experimented with with it much myself but uh the save import feature uh, from Crusader Kings into Europa Universalis, um, TJ. I know you've played around with it. What's been your feeling about how how well it works? Um, it works surprisingly
1: well for what it is. There are definitely um, there, there's definitely some aspects of it where you get that kind of you know. When the, the sky is the limit, you're kind of disappointed when you can't reach the moon, um, as far as things that it, it doesn't do. But it, uh, you know, for for instance, um, the, the, the way that it, it models the Holy Roman Empire, if there is no Holy Roman Empire at the time you import the game... Um, you know that it doesn't really it, that mechanic just basically gets dropped whereas you know it kind of cool if you looked and oh well I have my huge empire of britannia why don't we split that up into a bunch of princes and and use that somehow but Right. Yeah, in in general it it works really well. I've played um three games that I imported from CK2 into EU4. Uh one which was really fun because if you actually start the Mongol start date that was introduced in Old Gods and CK2, and you conquer a bunch of, bunch of stuff as Genghis and his sons, uh, when you import that into EU4, you will actually own all of the stuff east of there that belonged to the Mongol Empire historically. So you basically have this stretch of land from Manchuria to France. And uh, <laughs> now, does, uh, it,
0: does it do things, though, where you're still... Basically, a barbarian horde. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you can improve your tech in Crusader Kings, too, where, like, you can develop. Uh, some infrastructure and ideas um now when the when that's imported over to eu4 are your mongols still basically the uh nomadic tribe that you've got in vanilla eu4 where they're like ah now our Khan is dead we must all war and see who will emerge the strongest uh when in your ck2 game maybe they were a little more rational
1: well you have you still have the step nomad uh, government type in eu4 which does have You know, those events where you get pretender rebels and things like that. Uh, The interesting thing was, in the course of my Genghis Khan game, I moved the capital to Baghdad, which is one of the potentially wealthiest, if you build it up. It's like one of the the spots on the map where you can build the maximum number of holdings in CK2. And turned it into the technological hub of the known world. So I actually started out with a gigantic Mongol horde with Western technology in EU4, which I did not even know was possible until I exported the game. Um, so it, it has some interesting little things like that, where, you know, if, if you are some, you know, backwoods pagan that manages to build up an empire and advance through CK2's tech tree, you'll actually start on on equal footing with the Western powers in EU4. Um They've also just added uh, the ability to import heresies from um, CK2. If, if a, a heresy yeah. becomes powerful enough, they will be imported into EU4. So I did a test import um, of my Wessex game, and yep, it's Fraticelli across most of Europe. I'm not sure if the Reformation events can still fire for a Catholic heresy. Mechanically, they're identical to Catholicism, which is a little bit... Uh, A little bit disappointing, but uh, yeah, I'll have to wait and see on that one.
3: Can you actually roll from uh, EU4 into Victoria as well?
1: There's a fan project that is working on that Uh, Uh. so far. I I don't think Paradox is going to officially support it, but my theory is that they are—they're plotting out Victoria Three right now, and it's—it's it's going to be built with that converter in mind. Oh my
0: god! Right. At That's that point, <laughs> at that point, this is basically my EA Sports series, where it's like, okay, yeah. so like, Crusader Kings, my NCAA. Then I'm putting my <laughs> Madden class up in the up in EU Four.
2: And then you switch to Concussion Quest. <laughs> oh God.
3: But the fact that you can, like, yeah, like, con- like there's, like, 1,200, 300 years of continuity across three games, like, I will never play that. I-, I just know I won't. But the fact that it exists pleases me to no end, and I think it's tremendous.
1: Yeah, the main issue I've had is the two um, games that I imported from CK2, where I actually did play all the way through CK2 and then imported into EU4, is you load up day one of EU4, and it's just a an administrative nightmare because you have this huge territory your religious unity depending on how well you proselytize in CK2 is for me generally around the 40 to 60% mark you have all these provinces they do give you cores on all of them but all of these provinces with foreign non-accepted cultures and so you have to wait for okay how many of these non-accepted cultures have enough grounding in my empire that the event will fire and make them accept it and then what am I gonna do about the ones that don't. Um so if you're importing a very big CK two empire into EU four you might not have as much fun as starting as a one of the default sane right. sanely proportioned nations in EU four. That that might be one uh one one of the bigger criticisms I would have of it.
2: That's actually one of the things I wanted to talk about was that I've only had one game that I really succeeded in importing and playing a significant amount of, and I just didn't find it all that interesting anymore. Like, uh, this was a much smaller one. I'd had a really chaotic, messy Crusader Kings game and was playing, I think I had ended up getting the Kingdom of Denmark, which was really kind of more of a Pomerania, um, but a Baltic
1: kingdom. I've seen that and happen before where the either Slavs or the Ramyeva just completely roll over Denmark and get rid of all the Norse religion.
2: Yeah. This was actually just that, uh, I managed to have, um, uh, get the succession right where like my character's sister was the queen of Denmark. And then she became the heir and I, uh, managed to kill the whoever else was in the way and all of a sudden it was united pomerania and denmark but i think or maybe it just accidentally fell into place that way but anyway i ended up with that and so i had this sort of uh baltic semi-naval power that had all of denmark's tech trees and i just didn't find like playing as denmark or trying to do whatever goals and eu 4 to be like consistent with what i had been trying to do with all my goals in crusader kings 2 and um because it didn't have like the historical countries or it didn't have them in normal sort of settings like poland was totally fractured and uh i don't remember what had happened with russia but oh yeah the mongols had taken over like the vast majority of russia and also england um so yeah. it it basically became like okay what can i do to try to steal as much as i can from the minor powers who are going to disappear quickly and then i just have to figure out how to deal with the mongols and it the game just became much less interesting overall in personality field where the original europa universalist start dates all have like uh interesting things going on yeah of just the balance of powers of the era
1: it's like if you if you start from eight sixty seven, you've been playing Crusader Kings for like over five hundred years, and it's like you're driving this car along, and you have an idea of a destination, and then you export your game, and all of a sudden the car turns into a helicopter. And you're like, okay, what am I doing? Uh, I need to figure out these controls. Um, am I still going the same place I was before, or do I want to go somewhere else because I have a helicopter now? It's uh, it's a very kind of jerky mental transition you have to make.
2: Yeah, I also tend to dislike playing as naval powers in pretty much any strategy game. And so, like, the way that it had me set up as Denmark to basically be trade and Navy or conquest in Navy uh, didn't sit well with me. But every time I've tried to start a new game and, like, import it again, I've lost. So Yeah. Uh,
1: that's, that's another issue with the converter is that it, it recognizes... Certain nations that get imported as their EU four equivalents, like if you, you know, have the the Kingdom of, of Castile, it will recognize that as Castile in EU four. But say I am Norse and I took over Castile and turned it into like this Viking principality, and then I import to EU four, and it's like all of these ideas that give me piety and papal influence that I have no use for whatsoever, and um, so it doesn't it doesn't really look at what kind of a nation you are at the end of crusader kings it just kind of gives you the historical ideas for whatever nation tag you match up with
2: yeah and um that like kind of works historically as in um you have when the technology changes and all the changes that occurred in europe at that era occurred that it encouraged countries to behave in ways that were geographically technologically you know what they should be doing like a a country that controls most of the baltics is going to try to take advantage of uh trade around the baltic area that makes a lot of sense but it just didn't make sense with me because like i had been playing a warmongering polish pomeranian duke who just happened to have the king of denmark fall into his hands um so it's it's this weird sort of tension that i think it made it a little less interesting for me and like i said i want to try it again with a different country maybe in an area of the map where i would be more interested in playing eu for but i haven't actually succeeded at that so
0: as you wrap things up here i'm just curious um, at this point what is the craziest thing you've ever had happen in one of your games tj let's start with you The craziest thing
1: i've ever had happen in one of my games oh that it's hard to say. I have
0: Craziest to or most dramatic?
1: Think back over 570 hours. Like, I've almost become inoculated to the kinds of crazy stuff that, that would normally um, go on in Crusader. Probably, I actually kind of engineered this to happen, um, so it might not be the most unexpected thing, but I started out as... Um, in the 1066 start as one of the remaining um, Islamic kind of down and out at this point, because the Reconquista has, has kicked into full force. Um, one of the Islamic uh, sheiks or um, whatever whatever their Duke tier title is down in Iberia with the uh, Sunset Invasion DLC enabled, which uh, creates an ahistorical Aztec invasion that hits sometime in the 13th century from uh from the uh, the West, and I basically had this idea in my head that I was going to um, stop the Reconquista, unite the uh, the Kingdom of Andalusia and the Iberian Peninsula under Islam, wait for the Aztecs to come, convert to Aztec paganism, and uh, then declare my independence and run this kind of independent Andalusian um, blood-sacrificing Iberian state for as long as I could manage it um, so that was that was very interesting where uh, basically I I, I end up swearing fealty to the Aztec Emperor when he showed up and um, all of my formal vassals started rebelling and I had to put down all those rebellions and put good uh, good good Heart-stabbing Aztec pagans in their places, and create this very strange um, cultural mishmash of of Aztec and and uh, you know Spanish, Portuguese, Andalusian thoughts. I guess that was that that was that was a very fun game. Um, I didn't play it all the way through to the end date, but it was uh, just. the the fact that you can pull stuff like that off is one of my favorite parts of crusader kings um
2: i think my craziest experience was not necessarily uh something that was all that crazy for the game it was pretty normal but it made me behave in ways that like i was totally unexpected didn't expect um so i was playing as uh one of the northern Rus countries i don't remember exactly which one it might have been moscow uh and i had managed to do really well i'd expanded into central russia i'd managed to make a kingdom i might have even made it an empire um i think i made the volga empire uh and then the mongols showed up so the mongols are slowly conquering all the pagans who are near me and to my land and just when that happens you know i have an l- old powerful king die and he only has a young son left and all my vassals decide to take this time to rebel against me like right as the mongols are at my border and <laughs> not only is their rebellion annoying because they kicked me out for their own petty gains but every time you had that civil war it lowers the crown authority and the lowered crown authority meant fewer troops nationally and like this country was big enough that there was a huge difference between high crown authority and middle medium crown authority for the troops or whatever the 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 equivalent of the levies was i don't remember if i was playing a modded version where that was entirely tied to crown authority or not but if you if you you can't have it so that you get more levies than your crown authority even in vanilla i think but anyway it was knocking that down so like this empire which could have Created an army of like 10,000 that could have gone up against the Mongols, uh, suddenly was only able to create armies of 5,000. And like, I'm pissed off because now the Mongols are chewing through all of the hard work that I had done, and I can't fight them because my vassals had been such jerks before. But I'm also pissed off at my vassals, so I'm like launching civil wars to try to get my country back even though that's exactly what they did that's exactly their petty short-sightedness <laughs> that had ruined my empire in the first place but i just had to be so vindictive and figure okay i can handle the mongols better than you jerks but nope nobody could handle the mongols at that point
3: wow so,
2: yeah that was a really interesting sort of like holy crap this game has me totally engaged in feudal pettiness <laughs>
1: By the way, and the, futile Mongols, pettiness. the Mongols are freaking scary again now because with Patch 2.0, they basically squashed all of the uh, the gamey ways that you could beat the Mongols before. Like, uh, Well, basically, the Mongols don't take attrition, which is what makes them scary. They can have 200,000 guys in one province, and whereas a normal European army would be losing... Thousands of guys a month to attrition because the, the rationale being there's not enough, you know, food on the land to support that many troops. Mongols could just march wherever they want with their whole big death stack. And the, the way that you used to be able to beat them um, was luring them to a coastal tile and then landing a whole bunch of guys on the same spot at once and um, basically winning the battle before they started taking attrition and now they've made it so that when you land an army, they start at 50% morale. Um so it's like it it's hope I mean it's pretty much hopeless. I haven't figured out a way to actually beat the Mongols if you're on that eastern side of the map it, since patch 2.0 unless you're just so amazing at that point and you have allies you can call in from all across Europe and the best troops and the best generals i don't i don't think it's even possible to do it
2: uh, God, do crazy. you know if they fix the ai <laughs> so that all the hordes no longer just go into iran and stay there
1: yeah they have fixed that where they okay they actually will declare war on everything like they're supposed to
2: yeah because that was <laughs> that was a major problem for about six months uh after the old gods was the seljuks and the mongols would just go to mm-hmm. persia and stay there
1: yeah we like it here. Why, why would we? Why would we want to conquer anything? <laughs> this is this is a nice little province that we're just we're gonna hang out here. So,
0: Nels, anything uh, stand out in your mind for uh, crazy or dramatic stuff that it's ha- unfolded for you?
3: Yeah, probably the most dramatically low point. I mean, there were bits when things were bad, but the bit where it was bad in the way that was the least predictable. Um, the the longest game I played to start is the Duke of the Isles, like way up in the north northwestern chunk of Scotland. And I took over Scotland and eventually got down to Ireland. And I was starting to make some like decent inroads into England. I had this one old king, he was about to cacket. It. it seemed like he was pretty old, like <laughs> maybe late fifties, early sixties, and the air was set up well. And then that king got like I don't remember if they got kicked in the head or injured by a horse or injured in battle, but either way, they became like not they didn't die. They just became like meant like a like an invalid. Yep. And so a regent was appointed, but the regent was just an idiot. But amazingly, that old like half brain dead king still held on for like 20 years. So this regent was just bumbling things up this entire time. And all my well-laid plans uh, were dissolved by this old like half brain dead king. who Was amazingly hardy, even though his brain was worse.
1: I've had um, that happen, too, where a, a king became incapable and then ended up ruling for, like, 30 more years.
3: Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> you're so old. Just die. Just die. And then, <laughs> like, finally, like, 83, he died. And I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, let's have to undo all the work that this idiot did. Um, and that was the low point. But the fact that at the very, very end of that game, like, literally in the last maybe 10 years, um... Uh, I, like, founded the the Empire of Britannia, and the only heir I had was a daughter. So I switched things over to agnatic, cognatic primogeniture, so she inherited everything. But I also managed to line up a marriage with her to the, um, the the ruler of the Byzantine Empire so like five years before the the final cutoff time the the, the ruler I was playing was both the Empress of Britannia and the wife of the the, the entire Byzantine the, the queen of First, whatever, of the entire Byzantine Empire, and then their heir was going to be just, like, controlling these two giant, massive chunks of the world, but then the clock cut off before that happened. But I was like, that's not, that's not a bad way to end. I'm all right with that. I think for me, the, the
0: most dramatic thing that's happened for me, I've, seen, I've definitely had some crazy stuff happen, but I think the thing that sticks with me the most, because it was really kind of unfortunate and not the way I wanted things to play out, was... um during this game as the uh, Duke of Moray up in Northern Scotland, we were dealing with a really tyrannical King and, uh, to the point where he'd actually imprisoned, uh, my Duke's wife, uh, and she died in his dungeons. Um, and uh, at that point, it was kind of Vandela from, from that point on. But, but actually, uh, you know, like, I had to pretend that everything was cool. Uh, so it was all about, like, <laughs> laying the groundwork for taking this bastard down. Because uh, he basically came to the throne when he was, like, 25 or something. He was just an instant asshole. Uh, so there were, like, 20 years of, uh, like, feigning loyalty and everything. And this guy, like, made me his steward and shit. Um, but in the meantime... <laughs> while your wife is in prison no afterwards uh she she died within like a year uh of being <laughs> in prison so she died quickly and then my my duke was like yeah whatever you say you you know your majesty yeah i'm your man uh so we like i like i'm going around making all these alliances uh building up my relationships with all the other um scottish nobles uh most of whom uh in the north and west are like yeah this this guy's a fucking asshole he's got to go <laughs> um <laughs> And then um, another one of his enemies um, was the Duke of Fife, and he basically like, kills him and uh, wipes, almost wipes them out, but leaves the daughter alive. And I end up um, sort of adopting and educating the daughter. And uh, she's brilliant, and, like, the relationship between her and my duke was really good. Like, they absolutely adored each each other, and my duke was really capable. Uh, So she was getting, like, crazy good stats. She was, like, brave, charitable, um, brilliant and everything. And uh, so finally, um, even before she comes to maturity, uh, the thing, like, we strike. We take out the king uh, completely wreck his shit uh give the throne to another branch of the family uh and get a much more pliant uh king and also (laughs) shatter crown authority in the kingdom which is awesome it's fantastic um and then it dawns on me now in the in the fallout from this uh that this little girl who's about to become the duchess of fife um in all that warring uh the other potential heirs for Fife died, and I am now potentially uh, in line to take the throne for Fife. And um, that's when I call in the hit squad. Because <laughs> uh, I'm like, no, we get like <laughs> like, I can do this. I can, I can take over Scotland, basically." So I go phone Macbeth, I'm like, "I can pull this off. Like, I, got this little, I got this little fucking kid in I go my house Macbeth. <laughs> like i can i can grab it i can get fife i'll have Moray, and at that point like two-thirds of scotland is mine uh and i will basically rule the country um she's like 15 when this is going down uh the assassination completely falls apart she sniffs it out whatever she knows it happened and like the moment it's failed she ascends because enters her majority and takes over fife And that kicked off the most enduring enmity I've ever had in the game of Crusader Kings 2. Because (laughs) this kid, who I've basically trained to be a good ruler, implacably just, um, really good, uh, just fucking hates my entire family, hates my Duke uh, more than... Yeah, you know, more than more than you can imagine. So basically, from that point forward, uh, we have this really weak Scottish king. There's no crown authority basically in Scotland whatsoever. So Fife and Moray end up in this implacable like twenty-year war. Uh, with each other, as they basically try repeatedly to wipe each other out. This little girl's trying to kill my duke. He's sending armies back in, and when there's peace, there's plotting. So we have peace, and immediately like start trying to like create assassination plots. Like my relatives are dying, her relatives are dying, um, and so it's just it was the most insane bullshit I've seen happen. Like, and it pulled in, it pulled in England, Ireland, and Norway. Uh, by the time it was all was said and done, like our war had sprawled out because we're using like branches of the family to pull in other people, um, and they couldn't kill each other. Uh, they they killed off massive amounts of like cousins and nephews and uncles and everything, but like this Duchess and my Duke like spent the rest of their lives like at war, and the ki- the the weakened King of Scotland is just sort of like uh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I should you guys should stop I can't (laughs) because he was basically ruling by our suffrage so the only thing we agree on I guess was that this guy was so ineffective it was cool uh so it was it was awesome though because it was like it, it felt like in the game the reason this all went down this way is because they'd actually really loved each other when he was like her guardian and she was learning everything at his table as a child. And the moment he turns on her in this moment of Machiavellian like bullshit, which I regretted <laughs> even at the time, the moment she finds out he did that, all the things she'd been taught make it so that she will never get over it, she'll never forgive, and she's too good and smart to be killed. Um, so it was just this incredible saga uh, oh. that just was an absolute delight to watch unfold. Um, and then ironically, of course, the grandkids ended up getting married. Um, so the the, the Duchies ended up effectively united anyway. But it was uh it was it was an incredible like 20 25 year saga of uh, my aging duke and his former ward uh, just basically pulling out all the stops to destroy each other.
3: Oh god, it's so good.
0: It's
1: amazing.
0: So that's Crusader Kings 2 everybody. And
1: that's why Crusader <laughs> Kings 2 is awesome and You end. should play it.
0: Yeah, you know it's weird. It's like you tell these stories about these games, and they sound like a blast. What's 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 weird is just how much of you spend, just sort of watching it unfold, intervening in some ways, but a lot of it's just like I, I feel this weird mix of agency and being a complete spectator to what the hell is going on.
1: It's uh, it's one of the the first games I've ever really gotten into that that kind of just. I don't even know how to phrase it. I mean it's it's such an ecosystem. And and we were talking about earlier, like they didn't plan so much of this stuff to be a part of the game. It just it ended up being a part of the game and, and I I don't know that I could really point to another game that just has so much fine complexity and so many different interactions going on between so many simulated people, uh, that it gives rise to these really interesting situations and these in some cases, bizarrely realistic um, unintentionally realistic situations just because of of the way it models things and and how many parallels there are between that and and how this you know how politics actually worked in this actual era of history it's it's a it's an interesting interesting even just to watch even just to set on uh there's like a spectator mode you can enable from a console that just kind of lets you watch events unfold and and i've done that a couple times um yeah
0: it's a really cool game and i enjoy (laughs) the additions they've made to it but i think like it's 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 weird it ends up in this weird place where like i like sons of abraham um i think for me honestly the the early start of old gods and uh the new patch might actually be the biggest uh, factors in terms of my enjoyment. Uh, I haven't done a whole lot with the uh, Holy, the orders and uh, yeah, occasionally a Jewish courtier shows up, uh, you know, whatever. That's cool, I guess. Um, But it it doesn't feel like that big a deal to me. So it just ends up in this place where like, yep, it's, it's a pretty sound idea for a game. There's a lot of cool stuff in it and they've made a few refinements and a few additions uh, and more events uh, that are they're just overall really cool, uh, but in terms of you know it's, it it doesn't expand like certain uh, the, uh, certain other games where it's uh, that you have a lot of different stuff happening. Uh, the 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 core of what is Crusader Kings uh, remains what it was a year ago, which is exactly the kind of you know stuff we've we've been talking about here today. That'll do it for today's show. I want to thank Rowan, TJ, and Nels for spending their afternoon with me. And as always, uh, my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. Uh, We will be back next week uh, with, knock on wood, uh, Bruce Garrick, and a conversation about the Unity of Command expansion. Until then, this has been Through Moves Ahead. Good night.